Especially if you're visiting here, feel right at home. For, we'd love that. Uh, feel right at home here and, and to experience the worship. We do have a special gift bag for you afterwards. Uh, if you're visiting here, some information that you'll definitely want to get. And I don't know if you guys have checked out in the lobby there now. On the wall, it says Connect. We have all the various ministries and some ways to support the school. And, um, and then right outside at the information booth there, um, we have uh, the various discipleship books on Christian foundation, marriage, raising kids right now. Those are the three that we have, but uh, there's many more coming in. And so how is it looking? It's looking for a lot of people. I, I know well over a dozen, maybe more, are doing one-on-one. -on -one. They're actually going through the Christian foundation for that eight-week period. I think the parenting one is 10 weeks, and, um, and then the... Um, the marriage one is seven weeks, I believe it is. But uh, it's just a chance to connect and go through the scriptures and the booklets, you write them out. And um, they're right outside. It's $10 for the Christian Foundation, 25 for the others. If you can't afford it, just take it. Don't worry about it. Uh, there is, a, for your convenience, an iPad back there. Now you can pay with the credit card to help out uh, and if, that, if that indeed is helpful. Also, right on the app, you can just click right on the app and say pay, and you can do it right there in just a minute uh, while you're sitting there. And so um, what are the ways that you need to be encouraged? We've already heard some people wrestling with the area of bitterness, and uh, there is a four-week uh, discipleship for looking through the scriptures and wrestling together on that issue of bitterness. The issue of ang anger has come up, and uh, I, I'm on a list server with uh, 350 Calvary Chapel pastors, and I put it out there, and uh, one of the pastors had actually put together a booklet on anger, and I have the various studies on that. And so there may be some other areas in your life. Right now, the Truth Project is amazing. That's an apologetic 12-week uh, series that uh, Bill uh, and his wife are doing. Are you guys here for a service or second service? There you go, right there. Stand up, stand up there, right there. They're having it at their house on Friday nights. And this is, how do you know God exists? How do you know the Bible's right? How do you know Jesus is the right God? These are the questions you're going through and a great time to fellowship and you hang out with uh, Bill and, and uh, you'll end up going on the mission field as well, but that's another story. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so there are a number of ways to get connected and grow in the Lord, disciple and be discipled, right? Well, we are working through the life of David and we come to 2 Samuel chapter 1. So we just left behind 1 Samuel, and now we're heading into 2 Samuel. And again, on the app are the notes for uh, the message, if that helps you. A lot of people find that very, very helpful to have the actual notes right there on your uh, cell phone as you're going through the, the, this Bible study here today. And Lord, we ask now by your gracious hand, give us ears to hear all that your spirit is indeed saying to the church. Amen and amen. In verse one, now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, David had stayed two days in Ziglag. Now this is additional information that we didn't have in 1 Samuel. Remember, 
David had been in decline for four or 16 months, a year and a, almost a year and a half. He had been wrestling with submitting to God, hadn't been praying, hadn't been seeking the Lord. He was a barbarian out conquering uh, villages of the various allies of the Philistines and then lying about it, saying he was attacking the Jews. And he was slaughtering everybody, so there was no witnesses to tell on him. And, uh, and so this had been going on for 14 months, and then the king of the Philistines said, since you're such a great, uh, you know, my private security guard and great warriors, I want you to go to battle with me against Israel. So David and his guys went out to the battle line and, and the generals of the Philistines said, King, you may trust this guy, we don't, get rid of him. So David headed back and found out that his town of Ziglag had been burnt to ash and all things and all people had been taken away by the Amalekites. And this was a moment of breaking his own men wanted to kill David. David was completely without strength from weeping, as were all the men. But in that moment where he couldn't turn anywhere but up, he did turn up, and he prayed. And God said, go to get the Amalekites. You won't lose anything. Everything will be restored to you. And now we find out here today that David, after he collected all his family and all their goods and actually spoil of much more, the Amalekites had taken from other places. He now comes back to Ziglag, Ziglag and I guess where else to go? This is sort of his home base for the last 16 months. But he's sitting there in this city of Ash. It's interesting because guys, in just a few days, David's gonna go from sitting in the land of the Philistines on the ashy city of Ziglag all the way to Hebron being anointed as king. That quick. He repented, God restored all. A couple days later, he's being declared king in, in Israel. It's amazing how the Lord is and his grace it reminds me of a couple of Psalms. I wonder if David was thinking about this very moment when he wrote these Psalms. 113, verse five through eight. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? Here it is. He raises the poor out of the dust, lifts up the needy out of the ash heap, that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. That's exactly what happened, isn't it? He went from being poor and needy in the ash heap to being the prince, the king of his people. Psalm 40, verse one and two. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me, heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of a miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. Boy, this is exactly what would happen to David. There wouldn't be a, a period of time that would go by. It was instant, sort of like the prodigal son. Immediately, here's the robe, here's the ring, here's the sandals. Immediately, we're gonna have a feast right now, uh, today. That's sort of what happened with David. The moment he went decline, decline, being a barbarian, not in fellowship with God. He was so despondent over uh, 
at that point, about 14 years of, of Saul chasing him through various caves and all over Judah. He comes to the land of the Philistines and, and he just, for a season, loses his faith, if you would, loses his connection with God. But God knows how to put us between a rock and a hard place to get us to look to him. And he did, and immediately within days, he went from the ash heap to being king. Well, in verse two, we learn some more here. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David, he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. So this is uh, the first information David's gotten. This fellow he had never seen before, didn't know anything about him, but he had all the right qualities going on, that of mourning. And we're gonna find the mourning over the death of King Saul. And so everything looked right to this point and he falls down and then he begins to tell him in verses three through 10. And David said to him, where are you from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, how did this matter go? Please tell me. And he answered and said, the people had fled from the battle. Many of the people had fallen dead and Saul and Jonathan, his son are dead also. And David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son is dead? And the young man who told him said, as it happened by chance to be on Mount Geboa, <clears throat> there was Saul leaning on his spear and indeed the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And he looked behind him and he saw me and he called to me and he answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And so I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, please stand over me, kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he would not live after he had fallen and took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Now this is different because in 1 Samuel 31, it tells us specifically that Saul had been wounded, his sons were dead, and he looked to his armor bearer and said, kill me, because I don't want to get tortured for a period of time and humiliated by the Philistines. And his armor bearer, probably having deep into his heart that proclamation, if you would, of David, that heart of David saying, I won't touch the Lord's anointed, he wouldn't do it. And so it says that Saul fell on his own sword and he died. And it tells us that plainly. But now this guy has a different story. He's saying, well, yep, you know, all of this happened. Of course, this is the first time David's hearing this. So this is his first information. He said, yeah, everybody was dead, but Saul was wounded and he asked me to kill him. And so I did. And right before I killed him, he said, by the way, who are you? And he says, I am an Amalekite. I think this was a lie. I think the guy was trying to promote himself. I think he thought, oh man, David, because 99.99% of the people would have hated Saul if they were in David's place. And he just assumed, I'm going to be the hero. I killed your chief enemy. And David would praise him and give him some special rank or something. I think this is what he was thinking. But you just remember, 
guys. The Amalekites are the one that had just burnt David's city to ash in which David is setting in. So this guy was really at the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong nationality because he's like, oh, yes, and I told him, I am an Amalekite. And, of course, David and all his men, their blood would have rose to their, in their head, thinking, oh, man, we hate the Malachites. But yet the story is just amazing to us that all of these things come together the way they do. It's God screaming, really a New Testament doctrine, a picture here of what we in the New Testament should know very deeply and that is, you can't wound or hurt the flesh. You have to put to death the flesh. And so these Amalekites, these descendants of Esau, these guys, if you remember back when the children of Israel were leaving the land of Egypt, they were, they were just scavengers, picking off the weak, the weary, the half-hearted, and, until finally they had to stop and turn and fight against these Amalekites, and Joshua and the gang won. But yet, later on, the Lord would prophesy in Deuteronomy and, and other places saying, listen to me. It's important, he says in Deuteronomy 25, do not forget what the Amalekites have done. Don't ever forget it. Next verse is down. And, uh, and he says this, one day you're gonna come into the land, you're gonna be established in the land, and when you are established in the land, I am then gonna use that leadership to utterly wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth. There'll be no more existence of them because of what they have done to the children of Israel. Well, that time came hundreds of years later, and it was under Saul. And remember back, guys, in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Samuel 15, God came and spoke through Samuel to Saul, saying, let me repeat the story to you, Saul. And so God has commanded you to be the one that hundreds of years ago, he prophesied that one day, all of the Malachites be wiped out. I need you to go down there and do exactly what the Lord said. Don't bring any animals, kill them all. No people, kill them all. God's wiping out this cancerous people off the face of the earth. And you as king and judge are to be his hand of judgment at this time. Did he do that? No, he didn't do that. He saved the best, including the king. And remember, when Samuel came on the scene, he, Saul says, oh, bless the Lord, I've obeyed perfectly. But in reality, he hadn't. And, uh, and Samuel rebukes Saul, and, and Saul, he says, I'm out of here. And, and Saul reached out and grabbed Samuel's garment and ripped it. And he says, the kingdom's been ripped from you in this same way. And uh, he said, well, make it look good in front of the people. But what did Samuel do before that? He grabbed a sword, maybe big old giant Saul sword, and he hacked King Agag into little pieces viciously. That was the heart of God on it. 
Saul wanted to keep Agag as a trophy when God wanted him utterly destroyed. And we see these Amalekites generation after generation. When the children of Israel, after 40 years, were going to go into the promised land, it was the very first thing they had to fight was the Amalekites and the Canaanites. In Judges, when they're in the land, remember, once a year, the Amalekites and the Midianites would come and attack Israel and take all their harvest away. And then interesting enough, the Amalekites almost wiped out David's clan. But at the very last mention of an Amalekite is in the book of Esther. Esther, as you remember, gets raised up to be the queen. She was a Jewish woman. And uh, there was a guy there who hated the Jews because she hated, he hated uh, Esther's uncle, Mordecai. And Mordecai, this devout, honest man, Haman being a, a sleazebag, hated this prominent guy of character. But yet he had the ear of the king and he said, let's make a law that on a certain day, wherever the Jews are in your great world kingdom here, that if a person kills a Jew, they get their house and their business and all their money. And the king said, yeah, what do I care? I don't know much about the Jews. So that was gonna be a decree which cannot be changed. And Esther had to come before the king and to turn that around, and she did. But who was this guy Haman who almost annihilated the Jews worldwide? It says he was an Agagite from King Agag. This King Agag lived around long enough to have children. And those children almost once again, about a thousand years later, almost wiped out the Jewish people. Do we get the picture here? You see, the Malachites should have been killed by Saul. David wouldn't have had that problem. Ultimately, Israel would have been generation after generation wouldn't have had those battles and those hardships from the Amalekites. And then it sets dormant for hundreds of years. It seems like the Amalekites are off the, the, the information of the world until this guy becomes second to King Artaxerxes and almost wipes out the Jews worldwide. These guys are a picture of the flesh. In Colossians 3, verse 5 through 8, it says, Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedient, in which yourself once walked when you lived in them. But now yourselves are to put off, put to death, put away permanently, all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Listen to Romans 8.13. If you live according to the flesh, what will happen? You will die. Right before you kill Saul. By the way, before you kill me, who are you? I am an Amalekite. Wow. And finishes him off according to his story. I think he was already dead. But nevertheless... It goes on in Romans 8, 13, but if we live by the Spirit, you will 
put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. God's Holy Spirit who lives in you is gonna prompt your heart significantly to not wound, to not tame, to not lock up in a can that you, know, you keep that safe, but you kill the flesh. You destroy, wipe out, don't leave anything left of the Malachites, because if not, you will end up being humiliated. We think of that, even though I don't think this Amalekite killed Saul, I thought he, I think he was already dead, but he wanted the props as if he did kill Saul. Nevertheless, it is true that who was standing over Saul's dead body, who stripped him of his crown, who took away his glory, who took away the treasures. It was somebody that shouldn't have been even existing according to God's law. But yet the very last dot, if you would, on Saul's life is that he is being deframed, defrocked, unglorified by the very thing he disobeyed God in and not putting to death. You know, years ago, at this point, I would tell one story about the guy who had a pet python. Do you guys know that story? Where the guy, a uh, single guy, he has this giant python in, in this aquarium, giant aquarium, and, uh, and he just loves it. It's an albino. Uh, and uh, it's illegal. He's not supposed to have it. And he gets married, and his wife's like, uh, can we get rid of the python? Oh, no, 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 I love that python. Then they have a kid, and in one night, they hear some motion in the baby's room, and, and yes, they go in, and the pythons in the crib has swallowed the baby. And they question him, saying, how could this be? He's like, you know, if you keep feeding that python all that it wants, it's just tranquil. But if you forget to feed it, it'll do just about anything. So I thought, man, I need to document this story. So I'll look on YouTube once again. Guys, there is dozens of stories of people getting ate by their own pythons. Babies, toddlers, in many cases, their own owner. <laughs> falls asleep, forgets to feed their python, and in the middle of the night is swallowed by their own python. This is, this is such a, a telling story because we can say, well, it's a snake, it's dangerous, it's illegal. The government says it's too dangerous and illegal to even have it in your house, but I've, I've had this thing for years. I've been able to not only keep it in control, I find great amusement, and, and even I think I, I fall in love with this python. We, we have this camaraderie, you know, I love you, honey, but the python stays once we're married. <laughs> and it, it's such a picture that people think that, you know, I can, I can bring a King Agag back, and, you know, I could cut his toes off and his fingers off and, and, and make it so he can't be dangerous anymore. I can, I can have some Amalekites around, evidently a part of Saul's army. The guy was somehow a mercenary joining Saul or had somehow been brought back by some other people 
when they were supposed to kill the Amalekites and maybe a young boy. Somebody said, I don't want to kill this guy. I'll bring him back home. And there were more than just King Agag, but other Amalekites living in the land of Israel growing up. We've got to put to death those things. We can't tame it. We can't put it into a container and, and, and be safe from it. If you allow the flesh to live, what's it say in Romans 8, 13? You shall die. But if you put to death by God's spirit, then you shall live. In Galatians 5, 17, it tells us, explains this to us. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Do you get that? Our flesh is powerful and it almost has a mind of its own. And if you think I'm controlling my flesh, he's saying no. If the flesh is alive, maybe not consciously, maybe not where you're even seeing it, but it'll get strong again and come back at an unexpected time and could kill you, do damage, be the one to take away your crown, your glory, your honor. And then this sleazy Amalekite comes with the glory and the, the prestige of Saul to his enemy saying, here it is. In Romans 13, 14, Paul tells us there, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make how many? No provisions for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Spirit and the flesh, they lust against one another. They're contrary to one another. They're at war against one another. And you will at some point give back into that flesh at a weakened moment, unexpected moment. I, I, I don't think Saul was expecting to hear, I'm an Amalekite. I think he... He was expecting to hear, I'm the son of Benjamin, or I'm the son of, you know, Shemal, or whatever. But not, I am an Amalekite. Well, in verse 11 now to 16, we see the end of this. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. Notice they all had the same heart of David at grief at the hearing of the death of Saul and his sons. And they mourned and they wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of Amalekite. So David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. And David said to him, your blood is on your own head for out of your own mouth, you testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Later, Solomon, probably thinking about this very instance, writes in Proverbs 24, 17 and 18, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles lest the Lord see it and it displease him and he turn away his wrath from him. In Ezekiel 33, 11, say to them, as I live, says the Lord, 
I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? This guy didn't get the spiritual truth, did he? He thought David would be similar to Saul. Saul rejoiced over the death of his enemies, but David would not. David's personal convictions was a truth that he believed he got from God. And that is you don't touch the Lord's anointed any way, shape, or form. Even to extreme points, as we see David in the cave and David taking his spear in water, if you remember those stories, that David was upset that he even cut Saul's garment, just a little tiny piece. He touched the Lord's anointed and he repented. But now David is the king. And so David's convictions now will be the nation's convictions. And of course, as we study on, it is a truth of God. You don't touch the Lord's anointed. David recognized the works of the flesh, thinking evil, telling a lying story of self-promotion. He saw this guy as everything that was wicked. He's promoting himself over killing the Lord's anointed and, and such a thing should be put to death, not by one of David's mighty, glorious, mighty men, but just, you know, just a water collector, you know, a guy who polishes their shoes. You kill this guy. I don't want him to have any glory. That's the first part of this chapter. Put to death the flesh. The second we find as we finish up here in verse 17 to 27, and this is the song of the bow that David wrote. Notice here, David lamented with his lamentations over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasser. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offering. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan are beloved, pleasant in their lives, and their death, they are divided. They are swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Wow. David wasn't asked to write an obituary for Saul. And he says, okay, well, the guy, he was tall, yeah. good looking, 
And uh, he reigned from this date to this date. End of story. Here it is. Turn that in. David, we see in this unexpected moment, out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. Now we know how much he loved Jonathan. Him and Jonathan had a, a friendship like most of us will never have in a lifetime. There was a spiritual faith. There was a, a, a heart about God that they both uniquely had. David uniquely was a man after God's own heart. Well, Jonathan was stepping right in line with David. Jonathan didn't live long enough for us to have such stories. But I think in heaven, the next person who had the heart after God would have been Jonathan. And I think we'll see that on that day. So for him to praise Jonathan is no peculiarity. Jonathan was lovely. Jonathan was wonderful. Jonathan was a great warrior. He was a great friend. But what do we hear from David? As equal as his love for Jonathan, equal to his praise of Jonathan, is his praise of Saul. Jesus got it right, didn't he? Love one another. <laughs> love as you want to be loved. Don't stand around and wait for people to love you. Love them the way you would want to be loved. And by the way, as you're loving your wife and loving your kids and loving your parents and loving your friends, equally, Jesus says, love your enemies. And we see this with David. David's heart of thanksgiving, of praise, of sorrow was equal to his best friend and to his worst enemy. There was no bitterness, no evil speaking, true desire to honor Saul, a genuine expression of love about Saul. Solomon later would say this in Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs forth the issues of life. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 33 to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Fruit of vipers. How can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now listen to verse 35 here. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Do we see this? David had a good heart. And it was a good treasure that came from his heart. And all of a sudden, he was unexpectedly hit with Saul's dead, Jonathan's dead, his brothers are dead. And David just starts weeping. Oh, David must be weeping over Jonathan and his brother-in-laws. No, when David opens his mouth and from the depths of his heart. It's not just words to be written. It's a song to be sung. 
And there we see these beautiful words of praise and thanksgiving and honor to a man who made his life miserable. You see, I think if David had been sitting around and saying, Saul has basically run my life, took away my family, took away my wife, took away my best friend, took away my job, took away my youth, and my best years have been running from Saul. And I would never end up in the land of the Philistines, but that's Saul's fault that I was down there to begin with. And he could, you could keep going on, right? And isn't that the way we often do? We sit around and we, we say, oh, I'm not bitter. And then all of a sudden these thoughts start coming in and we don't want them to come in and our blood pressure starts rising. And, and, and then we, oh man, pray for me. I'm just so bitter again. You see, I don't think David was sitting around trying not to be bitter. And this is often the mistake people make is that they think that I need to work hard not to be bitter. The Bible doesn't say that. Again, in the golden rule in Luke 6.31, it says this, and just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Do you see there in Luke? It's the golden rule. It's not a neutral thing or a negative thing. If you look at the golden rule of other religions, every religion has a golden rule, but not in the affirmative, not in the positive. All other world religions that have the golden rule says, don't hurt others so others don't hurt you. Don't be mean to others that others won't be mean to you. It's in the negative. But the Lord doesn't say, and in the negative, it's in the positive. Do. It's proactive. Start doing. And then he goes right on to say in Luke 6, 32 to 33. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them, right? I mean, Hitler loved his best friends, I'm sure. But if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. I want to skip over to Matthew, this same Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. <laughs> that was what they got out of the Old Testament. Here's a perfect story that says the opposite. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do what next? Bless those who curse you. What next? Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you. Do you see how it's proactive? It's not saying you sit around and say, I'm not gonna be bitter, I'm not gonna be bitter, I'm not gonna be bitter, I'm gonna fight that thought, I'm gonna fight that thought. He said, no, you should be proactive. You know who those people are that have hurt you. You know who those people are that have wronged you. And the Bible says, pray for them. Just start praying for them. Now, you know, I went through seasons of my life of, of people doing me wrong. And of course, I can think in my life of doing others wrong, so I'm pretty ashamed of that. But nevertheless, this last wave, I just remember thinking I'm not going to be a Saul, I'm going to be a David, and fighting this thing. And then one day it was just clear, Brian, I want you to start praying blessings on these guys. Now, I thought I had been really good that I wasn't praying curses on them. 
I thought I was doing good that I could just sort of forget about him for a week. And when that happened, I just could not do it. And God says, because you're not in the spirit, you're in the flesh. You're not being filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. You gotta be, not just have the spirit dwell in you, you gotta walk in the spirit. And man, I wrestled, I tried, oh Lord, bless them. And it was just, the gears were cranking with no oil, you know? And the conviction of God's hand on me again, just deeper, forgive them, pray for them. It wasn't about getting this mindset in my mind of of a zen of, I don't hate anybody, I love everybody. I couldn't get there. But then I just started praying for them. And there was a day when it broke and I started praying for their lives and their marriages and their finances and their health. And, and God would just do all these blessings. And, and it was joyful for me to pray that. And I would think in the course of the day, they would come to mind and I would pray again. And it was, it was one of my favorite times of the day. And I realized my heart had turned that corner because I didn't just not think evil thoughts about them. I didn't just have neutral thoughts about him. I didn't just not be bitter. I'm not bitter, I'm not bitter, I'm not bitter. Get back, get back, okay, I'm not. I got to the place where one of my favorite things to do in the course of the day was to pray for them. Bless them, do good to them. Jesus goes on to say, greet them. Years ago, uh, I was a couple of years into ministry and I, I still don't know what, how it came from, but there was a church split. And there was a group of us that would go out all day Sunday afternoon after church and all day Monday from nine in the morning till nine at night to the prison. And I had a Bible college there and it, it did that for four years, it was very fruitful. But this had been about a year into it, these guys, and I still have no idea, but they felt they needed to split the church. Some of it was theology for some people, and I'm not sure. But what would happen is, is we would all still go into the prison together, even though nobody wanted to see each other. (laughs) But what was weird, and going out to Donovan Prison, everybody who was gonna go out to the yard first had to go into this like 10 by 10 room. They'd check everybody in, you stood in the, there, and you sort of sardined in sometimes because there's so many people. And then they would close that door and then they would open the door to go out into the various yards of the prison. And I remember that first Sunday being crammed in there and here's this guy who has lied about me, who has divided the church, and I am not next to him, I am smashed like a sardine in a can next to him. And then over on the other side is another guy, and I didn't hurt me, but he went with him to start a separate church, and, and I'm crowded with him. And, and the Lord just said, bless them, pray for them, greet them. At first, I was sort of like, hi, still alive? Too bad, you know. <laughs> that was, that's what was in my heart. Ah, oh, you still doing the ministry out here? I wish you'd go to a different prison. Leave me alone. But week after week, I was just scrunched in there. Two times a week, Sundays and Mondays. 
And God just broke me, put me into that place, just squeezing me in there with these guys that in my mind had totally wronged me. And God was just laughing his head off. I could just sense God laughing his head off, just saying, you're not getting past go. You don't collect $200. You're going to be starting into this room until you give in. And it did. It happened. I'd greet them. I'd love them. I'd hug them. I'm glad to see them. We'd be squished together and, and talking about the Lord. And, and, and what's, what was God's plan anyway? Wasn't it my loving kindness towards them that would bring them to repentance? Just like God's loving kindness and tender mercy towards us brings us to repentance. You know, it's awesome. We just, we, all we have to have as a Christian is a one-track mind. Love. Well, love who? It doesn't matter. Your enemy, your best friend, your wife, the guy who lied about you at work. We do one thing. Judge nobody, right? Love everybody as God has loved us. And this is what we see in this beautiful song of David. Well, I want to just end with these three verses. David is a man after God's own heart. And you ask why? I think this is it. David had something that we in the New Testament filled with the Spirit of God. David didn't have the Spirit of God in him, upon him, yes, but Jesus hadn't died and rose again. But we have the Spirit of God in us. And David looked exactly like Jesus. And nobody gave him that example. And a matter of fact, not a lot of people followed his example afterwards. But it's explained in Jesus, explained this way. 1 John 4, 7. Very last three verses there. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. First Corinthians 13, verse 5, the very last thing it says, Love what? Thinks no evil. He didn't. He didn't have one thing coming from his heart. First Peter 4 8. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love cover a multitude of sins. Isn't that true? What a beautiful story. Two things, put to death the flesh. Don't wound it. Don't put it in a giant aquarium. <laughs> that flesh is going to hurt you. It's going to hurt your family. It's going to eat up your kids. Don't let it live, but it dead, dead, dead. And if it comes back to life, kill it again. And then, guys, to not have bitterness is not the goal. I'm not going to have bitterness. I'm willing it. No, it's due. You proactive. You love. You bless. You pray for them. You give them to drink. You give them to eat. You do good to them. And as you're praying God's blessings on them, as you're thinking of ways to bless them and do it, bitterness will not be there. But it's only not there by a proactive stance, right? Lord, thank you for your word today. We ask in Jesus' name that you would put these principles deep into our heart. So clear are these New Testament doctrines 
in the picture of this momentary story of Saul being put to death and hearing about this Amalekite and seeing out of the abundance of David's heart only good treasures, not speaking it or writing it, but singing from the abundance of his heart, genuinely, not one shred of bitterness in him, just love and thankfulness and appreciation and good things about a man who was very evil towards him. But yet David wasn't affected. He overcame evil by good. And Lord, we ask now in Jesus' name that you would just put these doctrines into us, that we cannot deny them the truth of it. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen.